Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms, and if you're tuning in via YouTube, don't be cheeky, remember to subscribe. Today's guest is someone whose attendance has been long overdue. The subject matter is a very, very important one, especially for those of us in the UK. Uh, she's a senior caseworker and a director of the advocacy group Prevent Watch. Dr. Leila Atalhaj. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Dr. Leila, how are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. Thank you for giving me your time today. No, thank you for having me on. I know it's a very hot and we've tried to cool the room down. So listeners, if you hear a bit of a whizzing noise, that's the fan. Because trying to do a podcast with that in this weather, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. So, we've got lots to talk about. Most of today's show will be about the prevent strategy, right? And I have found that whenever we talk about counterterrorism or security or counterterrorism laws, um, I have to purposely uh, try to deliver the subject matter, engage with it in a way in which way the lay folk can understand. So, I will open today's podcast by asking you very simply if you can explain what is the prevent strategy so the prevent strategy is one arm of the uk's counterterrorism strategy so there are four arms uh, prevent pursue protect and prepare um, pursue protect and prepare are very much about a terror act either about to occur or to how to kind of prevent one from occurring or increase security measures um, whereas prevent is specifically within this space that we call like a pre-crime space. So there's not been an intention, there's not been any planning or preparation of an act. Um, it's an idea that you can prevent um, an act from occurring, but very, very early on in time. So we're not talking about preventing a terror attack from occurring when the person is thinking about it or preparing it, but preventing an attack because a four-year-old may in 20 years time become the next terrorist. So that is the logic behind prevent. So just to clarify, because when one thinks of the word prevent, mm -hmm. it's to stop something, right? Of course. So you're saying it's not even in the case where the state or authority will, will, will come in when there's material preparation. No. And when you say, uh, you say pre-crime or pre-thought, what was the word? Pre-crime. Pre-crime. So are you, are you thinking this is to do with perhaps an ideas? Yes, so a lot of people when they think prevent, pre-crime, they're thinking before the crime, naturally, because that's how we use the language. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's not before a crime. It's actually when you're still in your mind, it's thought crime. It's ideas, and they're not even ideas that have been linked by any type of evidence to suggest that there may be a crime to follow. Mm -hmm. So, and if I'm correct, it was the Labour administration under Blair who introduced prevent first, right? Yes. Um, was that in the wake of 7-7 or was it, was it before 7-7? It was, the idea was around before 7-7, okay. um, but then it was implemented post 7-7. Now, if I were to say to you, Dr. Leila, right, so we had Muhammad Sadiq, who was the most prominent of the 7-7 bombers, the one who gave the speech, you know, you're killing our brothers and sisters in Iraq and, and so therefore we're doing this to you, we're bringing terror and fear to the streets of uh, Britain because you're killing our brothers and sisters, you know, a very clear foreign policy grievance, right? A re retaliatory in nature, um, you're killing Muslims abroad, we're bringing it here, right? Um, why would it be a problem 
in its asal, in its essence, why would it be a problem to prevent ideas that could lead to events such as 7-7? So firstly, the ideas behind prevent, the foundation of prevent, you have to understand a little bit in order to understand how it works. Because ultimately, you're not stopping those people who are talking about their grievances. And one of the reasons why you're not stopping people is because the signs of radicalization, the signs that somebody might go on to be a future terrorist, according to Prevent, actually emit foreign policy. Um, and this was admitted by the authors of the study that came up with the signs of what might constitute somebody who's vulnerable to becoming a terrorist in the future. They actually say, so the authors of that study actually say, we omitted foreign policy. Did they explain why? They didn't explain why. Um, there is this idea, one of the signs is that you have a grievance or a sense of injustice, but a lot of activists will have a sense of injustice. Anything that's going on in the world, people might have a sense of injustice about. Um, and just because you articulate that, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to go on to commit any sort of crime, let mm -hmm. alone a terror offence. So that in and of itself is flawed because Prevent doesn't actually work like that in the first place. Um, we know that based on its signs, that's not what it's looking for. What we do see in practice, though, are comments being made by children, teenagers, bearing in mind over half of the referrals to Prevent are youngsters. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about grown men who may have capacity um, to do something. We're talking about young children. Are these recent statistics, though? These are, yeah. So um, I was actually in a recent interview and the person who was on the sort of pro-prevent pro side mm -hmm. was saying, oh no, what you're talking about are old issues. You know, you're talking about the 2006 iteration of prevent and those were the initial teething issues. No, we're talking about cases as recent as two weeks ago. Mm. Um, as the caseworker of Prevent Watch, I have cases as recent as, as two weeks ago where they're completely misinformed referrals. They're based on really minor comments that any child might make. Are you able to give us an example of yeah, such case? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the most recent ones was a young boy um, in secondary school, early years of secondary school, who made a comment about, um, well, it could be constituted as a racist comment, for example, right? So he's made a comment that's deemed to be racist. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to go on to be a terrorist. Mm -hmm. um, you could, because it's been done at school, treat it as a teachable moment within the school. Mm -hmm. um, even if you thought, actually, this is a really nasty comment, you could deal with it under the Equalities Act or some form of discrimination or hate crime if it fell into that. Mm -hmm. So we have legislation that could be used if you thought it was necessary to take it out of the school context and push it into the criminal justice space. Instead, they were referred to prevent. You might think, well, actually, that's better because they're not pushed into the criminal space, right? criminal justice space. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's worse. Because by being pushed into prevent rather than actually dealing with a police officer as a police officer, what happens is that child doesn't have the safeguards that a normal child would have if they were being spoken to by a police officer wearing their normal hat. I'm wearing my normal police officer hat, criminal justice. You know, you've been accused of saying something discriminatory. Um, that child doesn't have the safeguards that they would normally have. So they can be interrogated without their parents present, without anyone, without a lawyer, without a guardian. That wouldn't happen. If you were being investigated for a crime, even if you were a child, you wouldn't be spoken to by a police officer without anyone present. One of the ironies of what you've just said, and we'll touch upon this later on in the podcast, is you said the normal safeguarding measures aren't there, mm -hmm. but isn't prevent now being molded into safeguarding? 
it has, for social workers at least yes so it was when it was bought in um in 2015 on statutory footing before then it was a policy um from 2015 onwards it became a mandate for every public sector worker so you're talking about your teachers your doctors childminders lecturers yeah. yeah they were mandated to report signs of radicalization now at that point one of the ways in which it was, the terminology was t- changed around prevent in order for it to be accepted by these people was by framing prevent as safeguarding. Mm-hmm. So it was like, look, this is normal safeguarding. You know, we're, we're stopping people from being drawn into terrorism. It's just like grooming. Um, this is essentially what's happening. And it was accepted by a lot of public sector workers as, okay, fine, this is another arm of our safeguarding duty. Um, and that was really important shift in the framing in order for it to be adopted and for all the public sector workers to take it up because initially there was a lot of pushback. So on one hand, it's called safeguarding, but on the other hand, actually what it does in practice is the complete opposite of safeguarding to that child because mm. you have removed the safeguards. That safeguard, the, the child does not have any rights that they would have had if they were actually accused of a crime or suspected of a crime. So even just taking that racist comment, for example, mm-hmm. They would have had rights if they if it was going to be escalated. I mean, let's rewind a bit because there's, there's, there's a lot to go through. And some of the things that we've touched upon just in this exchange here, we're going to touch upon later, inshallah. I want to take it back to lay Muslim folk who will be watching and listening this podcast. And the way many or some would see it is that, well, hold on. Within our community or communities, we have had moments where individuals from our communities have gone out and carried out criminal acts that oppose everything Islam stands for, uh, and they do it in the name of our religion, right? These individuals, you know, they also happen to be, sometimes, whether they're affiliated to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they've spoken about things, they've attended protests, they've attended talks about Sharia law, caliphate, Muslim unity, jihad, liberation of X, Y, and Z occupied land. So we have an issue in our community where now and again, sporadically, there'll be individuals who carry out retaliatory attacks in the name of our religion. So we do have a problem in the community. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with trying to prevent uh individuals from adopting certain ideas for them which will then act as a conveyor belt which i know is something which uh neocons and and prevent advocates commonly or usually i don't know if they still use it they still use the conveyor belt theory they say they don't but all the rhetoric suggests that they are still okay so so the idea of the conveyor belt theory correct me if i'm wrong dr layla is that a grievance or something changes or they've adopted something and then that fertilizes the next stage of anger and wanting to lash out and then that results in some crime or act of terrorism i know i've dumbified it quite a lot but is that essentially what it is yeah okay so there'll be some within our own communities there'll be parents out there thinking you know what maybe we do need something that'll protect our daughters to become the next shamima begum or our son to prevent him from becoming the next muhammad sadiq is there anything wrong with the state intervening in preventing certain ideas that could not conclusively could make them do something which is haram or criminal or an act of politically motivated violence okay 
So there are two things there. I'll address the the first one in terms of is there anything wrong with prevention? Of course not. I think under any circumstance, everyone would suggest that prevention is better than cure, right? Whether you're talking about preventing a crime or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, if prevent actually did what it says on the tin, which is prevent's objective is to prevent people um, from being drawn into terrorism, okay? If it actually achieved that, then I would say absolutely like we should have a prevent around because it is preventing people from being drawn into terrorism even if it was called something else and we had a different strategy that actually prevented people from going on to commit any crime right be it a terror offense or any other crime mm-hmm. okay any murder pedophilia whatever you want to call it whichever crime you want to look at domestic violence any crime if you could prevent it absolutely of course we should right that's that's a no brainer mm-hmm. but is there any evidence to suggest that we can prevent a crime from occurring. No, there isn't, under any circumstances for any crime. Prevent is an example where they suggest that you can do it. Again, we've been shown absolutely no evidence to suggest that it can. Ben Wallace suggested that prevent is an important, Ben Ben Wallace was the um, Home Office Security Minister, I think he's the Foreign Office uh, Security Minister now. He suggested that hundreds of people have been saved under prevent. Last week, I was in an interview with David Otto, who does the um, more of the international arm Mm. of of, uh, basically taking prevent to other countries abroad Mm. and using it as a model. He suggested when we put to him, where's the evidence that prevent actually prevents these things from happening? Mm. He couldn't answer us. He didn't give us the hundreds. He didn't give us even one example. In fact, what he said was the successes of prevent can't be seen. So we have an issue where nobody can actually provide us with any So it can't be quantified. He's saying it can't be, you can't see it. So I don't know exactly what he meant by you can't see it, but he certainly didn't give us a single example, Mm. even though we can give plenty of examples of how it doesn't work, how there's actually evidence to the contrary of it working, but he couldn't give a single example of how Prevent actually works. So let's let me let me play Mr. Otto's role here. Like, I'll try to do a better job than him. Yeah, <laughs> actually, no, I shouldn't want to do it better than him. But let's say he says, "Well, look, Dr. Leila, because of the nature of Prevent, and I accept your point that is pre-crime. So something that's essentially pre-crime can't be quantified. But we have got case reports of where someone could have potentially adopted an idea." or joined a group that could have been problematic, but we prevented that because we came in, we intervened. Uh, what happens to children? They go through the, the channel pro- the, yeah. the channel de-radicalization program. Very briefly, what is that again? It's basically, um, you will have like a mentor or yeah. something and they'll go through, it's it's tailored to every individual in terms okay. of what kind of support they would need. But it's derad, yeah? But it's basically a de-radicalization. Okay, fine. Yeah. So isn't it the case that if something that is essentially pre, pre-crime can never truly be statistically quantified. How, how, how are you going to quantify something that's pre-crime? Is, is that your exact point? Uh, that is my point. My the, point is that they haven't, not only have they not been able to quantify it, but if you're going to stop someone because they have these early thoughts, we already have another arm of the counterterrorism strategy which does that, which is pursuit. Okay. So where there are people of interest, those people of interest are pursued mm-hmm. as per the arm, right? Pursued. Okay. So you have people who... They haven't actually committed a crime yet, but they are a person of interest. And so they are followed or intelligence services are used essentially to see what that person might be up to. That is still before any crime. That's still before any... That's pursuit. 
pursue. Yeah. Okay. So it's not prevent. So we already have something in place. We're not saying just let everything roll out until you actually get a criminal uh, offence or a terror offence. We're saying there is there are other things in place and those other things don't target four-year-olds and 11-year-olds for making silly comments or for being overtly Muslim. Cucumber, cooker bomber, Cu- exactly. terrorist house, Co- terrorist cooker house. Cooker bomb case is, is yeah. a very good example where you know a four-year-old basically drew a picture of his dad cutting a cucumber and he pronounced it what sounded like cooker bomb mm. and the nursery teacher referred him to prevent or the 11 year old who said he lived in a terrorist house mm. and because he was a muslim saying terrorist house of course that sounds like terrorist house to the person who referred him can i ask you something yeah have we and by we i'm saying collectively as a community especially those who are active against the draconian nature of prevent have we have we rinsed these stories are they as bad as you say and prevent what you say it is I think they're worse because we only have a few stories out there in the media. We have over 600 cases ourselves as Prevent Watch. And are they as sinister as... as Most of them are, as just as sinister. Okay, now, we're not talking about cases where, oh, there's something there and Prevent's picked up on it. A lot of the cases are just as sinister as these cases. Unfortunately, firstly, even when we take these stories to the media, we don't get much media coverage. We really struggle to get any mainstream coverage, even where the clients are willing to speak. Secondly, most of the clients want to be anonymous. Nobody wants to go on record Record. and be identified, even though it was completely, there was no further action, even though it was completely the fault of the person who referred them or prevent officers for taking it, you know, too far, they still don't want to be identified because there is that smear and there is that stigma. So we have those two issues. And these are real issues because we have had people who have come forward with their story, who have gone live in the media. I won't suggest which stories they are, mm-hmm. but they have received pressure. The journalists have received pressure in order to identify who that person was. From the editors? Not from the editors, from counterterrorism, to wow. identify who, because when they get the right of reply, they have put pressure on the journalists to, to ask who that person is and to identify their source. So, but we're allowed, by law, journalists are allowed to protect their source. Exactly. So why are counterterrorism officers, instead of just giving their right of reply, I mean, surely they have all the evidence to suggest whether or not it's true or not, Mm -hmm. um, and to explain their side of the story, Mm -hmm. they, unlike us, are always given the right of reply, and yet they're putting pressure to find out who the source is, rather than saying, actually, no, this isn't how it played out, this is how it played out. Now, the Fortnite case, for example, there was a four-year-old who was speaking about the online game Fortnite, Mm. saw his older cousins playing, Mm. uh, mentioned it in nursery, and he was reported to prevent. Now, when that story came out in The Guardian and then it came out in PC Gamer and a few, I think Metro as well, Mm. a few of the mainstreams picked it up and ran with it. It was an embarrassing story. Um, And Nick Adams, coordinator, national coordinator for Prevent, came out and said, that's not um, that's not a Prevent case. It's not on our database. Okay. now we know because we've seen the evidence, we've seen the subject access request. We saw the initial Prevent referral form. Mm -hmm. The journalist saw the prevent referral form and all of the evidence. Can all these things be obtained by FOI, by the way? Uh, subject access request if it's your personal data. So FOI okay. would be if you were asking for information that's broader. Now, we wouldn't be able to submit an FOI to so find how out. So how do you attain how do, how do you attain that? Via the client. So okay. the client would put in a subject access request oh, because, to get their own data. About themselves, sure. Yeah. Okay. So you have the right to get your own cool. data from okay. any public body. So they would put that in, they would see it, and then, of course, they share it with us to show us, okay, look, this is why they were referred to prevent, we need help, etc. So journalists have seen this, we've seen this, and yet the national coordinator for prevent was saying this wasn't a prevent referral because, and this is important, he said, it's not on the database. So what does that suggest? 
that suggests every year 6,000, 7,000 people aren't being referred to prevent as per the mm. Home Office statistics, mm -hmm. but more being referred to prevent because you've just admitted that one of your people is, are not on the Who's being referred database. but not on the database. And not only that, but how do you know that person isn't on the database? Because that was an anonymized story. Mm. So crazy. it opens up a whole can of worms in terms of how do you know who it was when that person was supposed to be anonymized? And secondly, you're admitting that actually the numbers on the database aren't actually in practice how many people are being referred to prevent. So the four P's, yeah? Prevent, pursue. Protect and prepare. Pr protect and prepare. Are we saying that we don't have an issue and in fact the, the, the other three P's are necessary? I believe so. I mean, I'm not an expert in the other three P's, um, so I don't know what, where their failings are, but certainly they are closer to an attack and have more logic to it than prevent. Okay, so there's two things I want to ask you based on this. <clears throat> there was a huge domestic terrorism problem in the UK for decades during the IRA period. In fact, the IRA have carried out far more material attacks whether it's whacking out Lord Mountbatten, you know, trying to whack out the Tory conference in Brighton, they tried whacking out uh, Margaret Thatcher, they've done mortar attacks on Downing Street. From your recollection, has there been any, were there any laws introduced at that time to specifically address Irish Republican terrorism? So prevent isn't actually, um, it's not implemented in Northern Ireland. That's interesting. Yeah, so we have Prevent in England and Wales, England, Scotland and Wales, yeah. but it's not implemented in Northern Ireland, despite the fact that the numbers in terms of terror attacks... Actual terrorist attacks. Actual terror attacks yeah. uh, would suggest that perhaps it should be, right? If this worked to stop uh, terrorism, mm -hmm. then surely it would also be implemented in Northern Ireland. So I think that's an important question that we have to ask. Why is it not implemented in Northern Ireland? Would it be fair to say that the existing criminal framework that was sufficient to address those acts of terrorism I think during, during, even, during the IRA period. Yeah, even here now, today, we have sufficient legislation to address all of these acts that are occurring. Um, so whether they're terrorism or not, we have sufficient legislation in place. How would you counter, well, <clears throat> young, young Irish people or people with Irish heritage who aren't going over to Northern Ireland to train and then come back to kill Brits, which is what we've had potentially with some, a very mi minor, uh, fringe minority of individuals who have gone off to, let's say, Syria, um, joined whatever groups, maybe have come back with certain ideas and wanted to carry out attacks here. We've not had that with the Irish. So even here, like if we had, so prevent isn't necessarily what is being implemented there, where people are going abroad, they're training, right? People are going abroad, they're fighting or they're training to fight and they're coming back. These aren't even the people who are being referred to prevent. So you're saying that's not even the demographic of people that Prevent are interested in? No. So now let's get to the nitty gritty of it. In that case, based on what you've told me so far, Prevent sounds like or appears like something that would be more appropriate in Orwell's 1984 or a Gulag or Gestapo. So it sounds, it sounds, if they're not interested in material preparation, they're not interested in someone who's just about to join a group or about to attend somewhere that something's going to go down. But it's to do with things like some of the things that you've mentioned with the cases of the children and school children. But if we were to take it back, it's to do with 
events and venues being cancelled or being pressured to cancel, certain speakers being non-platformed, uh, pressure being applied to certain uh, venues and, and places not to allow uh, events to take place if it's associated to particular groups or certain individuals are going to be sp uh, speaking. Um, it, it appears to me, I, I can't even describe it. It, it seems like th th there's, there's a level of undercover spying attempt to basically change Muslims. So I think one way to describe it is to suggest that there's acceptable thought mm. and speech and acts. Uh, well, I won't even say acts, I'll say there's acceptable thought and speech mm. and there's unacceptable thought and speech. And Muslim or conservative Muslim thought and speech falls under the flag of prevent. So can I ask you a few things? which if a child espouses it, or if a grown adult espouses his views, can you tell me if this is something that could be flagged? Um, the liberation of Palestine. Yes, and I say that because we have had cases where people have spoken about Palestine from a purely solidarity perspective and they have been flagged. Okay. Mm, Kashmir. We don't have cases, but I can imagine it would fall under the same, but we don't actually have cases. Any occupied land of the Muslims or where Muslims are being oppressed, if we were to speak about it in terms of changing that situation of being oppressed or occupied for resistance, would that be something that would be flagged? I would suggest yes, and I will give the example of the 11-year-old boy who said that he will give alms to the oppressed um, because he has a good vocabulary. He said alms rather than charity. Mm. And that was interpreted as opposed to oh, ALMS. Oh, he said ALMS. ALMS. He okay. said, I would give alms. The question was posed to him at school. What would you do if you had a lot of money? And he put up his hand and said, I would give alms to help the oppressed. Because his vocab's really good. His vocab's very Mashallah. good, but he's a brown Muslim. Of course. So the teacher didn't even challenge him on this. Instantly, Just she assumed his weapons. Him. She assumed. Why, why wouldn't she assume that? Right, she's been trained to spot signs of radicalization. You've got a Muslim boy here talking about oppression, giving aid, but he's talking about, as far as she's concerned, arms. She didn't push back and say, why? Why, why do you say that? Why would you do that? So then he could further elaborate. Straight away, he was referred to prevent. So yes, I would suggest that. Okay. Um, democracy as a system of governance is something that's un-Islamic. Interestingly, we had a non-Muslim uh, teenage boy talking about democracy and he was criticizing his teachers okay. um, about not being, you know, not allowing him to exercise his democratic rights and he was referred to prevent. Wow. So I would say anything that falls into the language of what comes under British values, mm. democracy, etc. If it's challenging, you, you could be referred. So the four British values of which the vast majority of Brits don't even know what it is, it's uh, individual liberty, Rule of law, uh, tolerance, tolerance yeah. and belief in democracy, right? So you're saying anything that kind of questions or opposes these four fundamental British values could potentially be flagged. Yeah. By the way, is the fundamental British value still used as a, as a metric to kind of um, to measure someone who's an extremist or non-extremist? So British values is a strange one because I know definitely schools use it very heavily and they will use it as part of their kind of day-to-day -day 
but also they go back to um, you know trying to prevent extremism. Now, British values was initially brought in under yeah and under Cameron. the under the definition of extremism, yeah, yeah. British values was mentioned. Yeah. So there is that intrinsic link. Okay. Um, and I know definitely within schools, they still use it. Caliphate, believing in a caliphate? Caliphate, yes. I mean, it, again- Not a nicest one, like a nice one yeah. that we had for like over a thousand years or something. Again, I think we did have a young, um, young boy who wrote about uh, Islamic State, what that would look like. It was actually their essay. They were asked to write something and he wrote, okay, what would an Islamic state look like? He was actually praised for his piece, his essay. It was really good. But, but then he was referred to prevent. <laughs> so <laughs> let me get this right. So that was his essay. He wrote a very really good essay, mm -hmm. which he got praised for. And at the same time, he got referred to prevent. Yes. Oh, SubhanAllah, it's crazy. Um, things to do with uh, the penal code of the Sharia. We haven't had cases, but I can imagine, you know, it, it would. <laughs> okay. Uh, homosexuality or same-sex relations is haram unequivocally. Yes, we actually had a case um, of, again, young teenage boy, year eight boy, who um, he was accused of making a homophobic comment. Okay. Now, he was accused by another student. Okay. And you can imagine in school, lots of children make various accusations. All the time. Um, he, he wasn't treated as a normal child where another child had made an accusation. Um, instead, he was referred to prevent. Mm -hmm. um, he was interrogated by a prevent officer, social worker, came also to try, because when a child is referred to prevent, they, they will automatically come with a social worker. Mm -hmm. um, or if they don't attend, come and visit the child at home or at school with a social worker, then they will flag it to social services and social services will want to take an assessment of your home, your environment, what you're like, basically assess your family. Um, so even if you were never flagged to social services before, a prevent referral would also by default for a child mean that you get social services intervention as well. Um, now that could be voluntary if the threshold is very low, which in most cases for the prevent referrals it is, it's mm. a very low threshold and it's voluntary, but a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people just see social worker wants to come, they want to assess me, I have nothing to hide, okay, fine. And before they know it, they now have a social work record for them, their family, and any other children. It, you know, it could have been your 15-year-old child, but ultimately all your other children. But back to that boy who made the homophobic comment, he was interrogated by um, the prevent officer. Um, they suggested intervention with Channel, and this was due to an alleged homophobic comment. Now, even if he had made that comment, right? Mm -hmm. he says he didn't, but even if he had made the comment that he was accused of making, was it necessary to report him to prevent does that mean he's going to go on to commit a future terror act you know how many terrorists for how many terrorists is there evidence that they are homophobic i'm assuming little to none i mean we haven't ever been shown this evidence yeah. right nobody's saying well actually every terrorist you know as a youngster they Would were homophobic yeah, yeah right so if there's no linkage there, why are you getting Prevent involved? Why do they have to be spoken to under the securitized lens? Why can't it be something that the school would naturally just take up as their school responsibility, put in sanctions if he did say what he said, mm -hmm. use it as a teachable moment potentially? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not going to be helpful to have him now seen as a, a future criminal and not any criminal, but a terrorist. You're mm. basically accusing someone of being a future terrorist. That's not a light crime. That's 15 years. Of course. Um, well, what else comes to mind? I know obviously Five Pillars have covered many stories about children being prevented from praying at school. We've covered lots of stories in the last year, year and a half. 
is wanting to pray at school something that can get you referred to prevent? We had a teacher, yeah. a teacher at the school, not even a child, a teacher at the school who was referred to prevent. And the basis of his referral was because he prayed in congregation. Okay, this wasn't even during like COVID where there were restrictions or anything like that where he said, oh, you shouldn't, we're going to sanction you because you were praying in congregation. You should have kept a two meter distance. This had nothing to do with that. He, the basis, as ridiculous as it was, was that he prayed in congregation with, with, the some, school of the kids. Sixth form, with some of the sixth form students, okay. right? Now, the sixth form students can pray. Of course. Um, staff can pray. Um, you can use the same space to pray. And the fact that they flagged it and they referred him to prevent is quite shocking. But he was referred for ultimately the basis of it. Now, he might have been referred for many reasons behind the scene that didn't make it to the prevent referral form. Mm -hmm. There might have been, and we see this a lot, where prevent is weaponized because there's a tension between... There's issues and other issues. Yeah, other issues. So actually, in this case, the, the teacher who was referred had already put in um, a case of discrimination against one of the staff members from the school okay. already. So we feel that actually it was used in, in a very kind of weaponized manner. But the point is, is that the basis of that referral was because he prayed in congregation and that warranted two prevent officers to come and visit him at his home. SubhanAllah. That's crazy. So man. even if the school had used it to weaponize him, surely the prevent officers would have the common sense to say the basis of this referral is such nonsense. We're not even going to visit them. Yeah. We're not even going to, you know, we're just going to completely park this one. But every single prevent referral, no matter how ridiculous it seems on paper or otherwise, would immediately by default be vetted by a counterterrorism officer. Um, if a child refuses or says, you know, the nativity play, I don't believe in Christmas, um, Diwali, nah, not interested, haram. Children do it, man. Mm -hmm. When I was in law school, and you know, Allah forgive me, and, and the many Muslim parents, mm -hmm. we should do Diwali. I would obviously now never allow my children to take part in Diwali to act as Raman and Hanuman and, 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 and things like this. It's problematic. Or the nativity where you're kind of like endorsing the, 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 the Trinitarian uh, uh, interpretation of, of Jesus being God and so forth. What if, what if a child or someone in school opposes this? Like, I don't want to take part in the nativity play because it's against my religion. Or I don't want to take part in music class. Or, yeah, so it's something to do with nativity, Diwali, music, drama, things which there are pos clear positions or at least a position from an Islamic normative point of view to why this would be problematic. So again, we had a young teenage boy who said that he does not want to take part in uh, mixed PE. Okay. Now at the school previously, mm -hmm. they had um, single sex PE lessons. Um, I believe it was just kind of after the first um, lockdown, when the kids returned back to school, mm -hmm. they started doing mixed gender PE sessions in that school. And the boy said, I don't want to. I don't want He's a very shy boy. He's known to be a very, very shy boy. And he said, I don't want to take part in, um, in these mixed gender uh, PE sessions. And so the teacher challenged him and said, why? And he said, well, you know, it's against my religion. And um, teacher said, well, show me some evidence that it's against your religion. It's not. So he Google searched and showed them like the first link that came up on, on Google, you know, um, and, and he's been challenged and he's obviously now has it. to find something on Google, it. right, to, to suggest that this goes against his religion. And he showed them something very brief on his phone. He just like literally turned his phone, showed them, said, look, here, here's some evidence that it was probably like Q&A. It's like some, Q &A some or something. Q &A, yeah. like, really bog standard yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. Now, the teacher made a prevent referral and said that what he had showed her was actually uh, an extremist view. Now, 
they didn't suggest who it was that had given this view, what that link was that was particularly problematic. The website or the scholar. Exactly. Okay. No, they just said, oh, this is extremist view. And the, the child was actually referred to prevent. Now, thankfully, in that case, the prevent officer did see it as a completely misinformed referral. It didn't go far at all. And like many of these cases, they don't go far, even by their own admission. The Home Office suggests that 95% of prevent referrals, we're talking 6,000, 7,000 referrals every single year, 95% of those, by their own logic, doesn't warrant any, you know, de-radicalisation. So what's the state's utility in having such a strategy that of which 95% of the people referred, it becomes nothing? Yeah, that's the question. I mean, ultimately, if you thought about it like this and you said, look, well, 5%, are actually problematic mm -hmm. then maybe you could justify saying well it's okay if you have a 95 percent false positive because even if you stopped one person that would be worth it it justifies right it, it, it would justify it, it. Yeah, yeah. but even those five percent who go on to channel aren't necessarily being referred to channel for things that are linked to them becoming future terrorists mm -hmm. that's crazy i mean Dr. Lee, if you know some of the things that i described to you some of the positions um they're not fringe positions in our religion they're not so many of the things that i mentioned to you are very much normative by consensus and if these positions beliefs and values or thoughts are being flagged as something that's unacceptable thoughts yeah or unacceptable ideas i will then ask you then why do you believe or why do the team at prevent watch believe that such a strategy is in place and has stayed in place through the Blair Labour administration, through to Gordon Brown, through to Cameron, through to Theresa May, right up until to Boris. I mean, it's it stayed cross-party, and it stayed. It's been with the, it's been with us for the best part of what fifteen years? Would you say? Yeah. Round about that. Yeah. yeah. What what it, why do you believe such a strategy remains intact? Well, I certainly don't believe it's because it's preventing terrorism. And I say that not based on my own opinion, but based on the evidence. We've got at least seven terror convicts, right? Some of them have actually been suicide bombers mm -hmm. who were known. They were known to MI5 prior to committing the terror offence. And they were known not only to MI5, but they had been referred under prevent. These are Muslims? Um, or right majority, I believe, were Muslim of the okay. seven. Yeah. Okay. Now, they were known, they'd been referred and flagged up to prevent, and they still went on to commit a terror offence, okay? So you could say, okay, maybe they just slipped through the net, maybe we need more. So this is the logic now from mm -hmm. prevent is, well, actually, prevent needs to be harder, because these people slipped through the net. But harder in what? What are you going to do? Refer more people to prevent? Is that your solution? That actually, that 95% should be a bigger number. It shouldn't be 6,000, it should be 20,000. Um, so it's very difficult to understand why. They're certainly not doing it because they genuinely believe it stops terrorism. There's been a wealth of evidence over the past more than a decade now to suggest not only does it not work, but one of the UN Special Rapporteurs even said this could be fueling radicalization because you are stigmatizing and you are alienating a community, um, the Muslim community mainly, and that could be fueling radicalization, right? You're not, you're not creating a, a, a environment that's leading to de-radicalization mm -hmm. so you've got un rapporteurs you've got mps even who have raised concerns you've got ngos and human rights ngos the major ones you know they've all spoken out and about their concerns legitimate concerns around prevent and yet each year it continues 
Um, we've had a revision in 2011, which only led to prevent being expanded from just the Muslim community to now also far-right extremism. Mm -hmm. um, we have now a independent, a so-called independent review being led by William Shawcross, where the terms of reference even show quite clearly that he has no intention of looking at all the concerns around prevent um, and managing So why those. insist on it? I, I'm asking you, what are your thoughts? What, why do you believe that the pre prevent is seen as something that's necessary by the British establishment? I think if you look at all of the things that have occurred so far beyond prevent, in, even in wider legislation, there is a clear move towards being much more authoritarian. Okay. Now, if you have this play between various communities, um, if you have division, it's going to be a lot easier to rule. Of course. And power has always relied on that. Power has always relied on having a suspect community. Okay? It was the Irish before. It's the Muslims today. And it probably will be the Muslims for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it causes untold damage to the Muslim community. Um, you said earlier, you know, people are looking, like Muslims themselves are saying, we have a problem. Right? We, ha we have a problem because people are doing this in the name of Islam. Which community doesn't have a terror offender doing something in the name of their religion or their ideas? They all do. They all do. Some, so, many more than others, actually. Yeah, so actually, if you look at Muslims versus others, they're not actually higher. No. Right? If you look at actual terror offences committed, mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself, why is it that Muslims feel they are so responsible for these acts? And they feel responsible and they carry this burden because they are the suspect community, because they are fearful. And it places them in a very disempowered position where they're always trying to justify and always trying to apologise even before anything has happened and go above and beyond. Actually, um, I was present at a child protection uh, meeting for some of the children who had been referred to prevent. And I was only there as support for the mother who was attending. And everyone in that room, bar one person, was non-Muslim. And they were all talking about how amazing these children were. And I will never forget it because I thought, wow, these kids put everyone else's kids to shame. Like mm -hmm. they are A-star students, you know, doing their extracurricular activities. Everyone was praising them, right? This was part of the progression of their plan with social services because, you know, they, they were seen as um, vulnerable to radicalization. Mm -hmm. Only the Muslim in that room, who was a professional involved in their life, only the Muslim in that room decided to pick on something that was a complete non-issue. I said, well, I have some concerns about this. Mm. It was a non-concern. Nobody else touched upon that. And even the way in which she articulated that concern was quite ridiculous. I, obviously, I can't go into the specifics of it, but it was such a non-issue. And I had to ask, why is it that she felt the need to do that? Did she feel the need to do that because she's Muslim and she's trying to justify... And we overcompensate with these issues all the time. Exactly. She's Always. trying to justify, you know what, I'm Muslim... Let but me just highlight something. Let me highlight something because just so that you know I'm not on the side of this Muslim on the other side of the table. SubhanAllah. That's crazy, man. So what's the significance of the CTS Act 2015? Because I know that was a very, very, uh, you know, watershed moment for the prevent strategy. Um, because I believe that is when it got its statutory footing. I believe that is when essentially public sector workers became state spies. Um, can you just elaborate on why the CTS Act 2015 was significant? I think the main significance of that, bearing in mind, um, Prevent became statutory shortly after the Birmingham uh, Trojan Horse affair. Was it not statutory under the CTS Act? It was not prior to 2015. Okay. 
right? So 2015 is when it became statutory. Okay. Um, and even now, even though it's statutory, the statutory requirement is that you pay due regard, right? You don't necessarily have to implement. Is it a criminal offence for a teacher not to report? See, I don't think it is. I don't think it is because it is guidance, okay. right? Um, but at the same time, they are mandated. So their own uh, colleges, etc., would have policies and procedures in place. Okay. So they could be breaching um, whatever it is. And of course, if you had a concern and you were mandated to report on those concerns. And obviously you've got organisations, previously obviously it was We Inspire, but you have other organisations that go and give training to these schools, right? Yeah. That then uh, influence or shape uh, policies. Am I correct? Yes. That's that's how it works generally yeah, so they will come they will give their delivery and then the schools will say okay we're doing this because of prevent because okay. we have a duty to safeguard against extremism and it will be all sorts of things so for example there's a school that um will bring in uh prevent teams to speak to the children mm -hmm. you don't have to bring prevent teams in to speak to children prevent duty is a duty for the people within the school, the staff. But Sarah Khan needs something to do. Yeah. Exactly. You know I mean? So even Sarah Khan, she was supposed to be defining extremism. Yeah. Right? Nobody has defined extremism yet, legally. Mm. And even the non-legal definition of extremism isn't agreed on. Mm -hmm. So Sarah Khan, instead of actually creating some solutions to extremism, she introduced another concept, which is hateful extremism. What is hateful extremism? It's mm. basically an offshoot. If you look at what, what really hateful extremism is in terms of her description and the whole report that she produced, really, how is that any different to hate crime? We have hate crime, and actually hate crime is stronger than what she's suggesting to be hateful extremism. So look, I mean, you said that in 2011, that was when Prevent kind of branched out to other types of extremism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most likely um, white supremacy, right-wing kind of... Yeah. Um, would you say... Would you then say they would be inaccurate or unfair or misrepresentative to say that prevent only or disproportionately targets Islam and Muslims? Firstly, no, <laughs> because uh, when you look at the numbers of Muslims referred, mm -hmm. so they say now, okay, um, I don't know the exact statistics off the top of my head, but let's say 5,000 people. They'll say, well, of 5,000 people, you know, 2,000 people were far-right extremists, Oh, not far-right extremists, sorry. They were referred for far-right extremism. Um, you know, a thousand were mixed ideology um, and 2,000 were, were for Islamist yes, yes. extremism. Or they yeah. might even say 1,500. I think yeah. that was roughly around the numbers of yeah. last year, for example, yeah? So they say, well, actually, you know, there's less people being referred for Islamist extremism than far-right extremism. That's the raw numbers. That's not looking at Muslims as 5% of the UK population. 3 million out of 60 million people. Exactly. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's a huge you are much more likely as a Muslim to be referred. So that's one angle. Firstly, just when you look at the math, right? You, statistics are strange. You can make statistics look however you want them to look. Absolutely. Okay? So if you look at raw numbers, then of course you're going to see that there's more far-right extremism. Even 500 would have been a huge number. Exactly. You still would be more likely as a Muslim. Absolutely. Right? So I think currently it's about eight to ten times more likely if you are Muslim, based on those numbers, to be referred to, to Prevent. Okay. Before, initially, when Prevent was initially rolled out, you were 50 times more likely to be referred. Okay. Then they expanded and said, okay, we're going to look at far-right extremism. Okay. Every year it's gone down slightly in terms of how much more likely you are. So now we're at eight to ten times. So still a lot more times more significant, right? So that's one thing. Second thing is, when you look at um, 
So you've got the, the increase in terms of raw numbers and likelihood. Then you've got, um, I completely lost my trail of thought. We're talking <laughs> about numbers, uh, the disproportionality, right, yes. 5,000, 2,000. Prevent listen. priority areas, yeah. that's what I was going to talk about. So yeah. then you have the number of areas that are being injected with money from prevent. Okay, these are focus areas. Now, previously in 2014, they released these prevent priority areas in terms of areas, boroughs, basically, that were getting more funding to focus on prevent. Okay, and they suggested that the criteria was based on the demographics of how many Muslims lived in that area. They were open about that. Okay, in 2014, and you could see that they were targeting areas with high numbers of Muslims and they were pumping prevent money into it. So there must that be is a vicious cycle. You prevent more money, then guess what? You're going to see more prevent numbers because I want to get more money for the next year. 100%. And so I'm going to fulfill that uh, funding, that little funding pot that you've given me. I need to justify that I've used it. Like any grant, any grant, you get the and grant and you justify that grant and afterwards. to justify it, you need referrals and numbers. You need referrals. You need to tick those boxes. So... That was in 2014, so you could say, well, no, we're in 2022 now, it, we're a lot further on. Um, at the beginning of 2022, in fact, at the end of 2021, we, when we did the People's Review of Prevent, which was an alternative to the Shawcross-led uh, government's Review of Prevent, we put in um, an FOI to find out the areas, we put in many FOIs actually, we put in over 300 FOIs, okay? To every single borough, we were yeah. like, right, do you get prevent funding? Do you get prevent funding? Do you, imagine doing that like 300 <laughs> times, okay? It's not easy as well when you have to send them singly and yeah. some of them have forms to fill out. So we did that. And strangely enough, a lot of the boroughs were saying, we don't hold that information. How can you not hold the information? So they weren't saying, we're not gonna give it to you based on national security. Uh, for national security exemptions. They were saying, we can't give it to you because we don't have the information. So who does? You don't know how much money you get. So firstly, that's a clear lie because mm -hmm. you must know how much money you get. That's like you telling me you don't know how much you have in your bank. It's like, who knows then? Okay. And you say, oh, go to my bank. They'll tell you. I, I don't actually know. Of course you know. It's, the money's coming to you as a borrower. You should know. And you're spending it. So you should know. Okay, fine. Did, so any, they, did any of them come back with they you? They fobbed us off. Some of them did. Some of them gave us partial answers. Now, eventually we got to the bottom of it and we received 42, a list of 42 areas that were getting uh, an injection of prevent funding for prevent projects. Now, when we did the math, those areas, firstly, a lot of those areas coincided with high demographics of Muslims, mm -hmm. still, even though they say, oh, we're looking at far-right extremism. Secondly, 75% of Muslims in the UK Right, three quarters of Muslims in the UK live within a prevent priority area. Right, so if you're Muslim, it is likely that you're living in a prevent priority area because seventy-five percent. So, uh, so four Muslims in the UK mm. it is very likely that three of them will be living in an area which mm. is a prevent focus area, and yeah. their borough or their local council will be receiving disproportionately more yeah. funds than other areas. Yes. Is that what you're telling yes. me? Yes. So even though they didn't specify, we asked them what was the criteria of choosing these areas, and then they didn't give us that information. So where did you get the statistics that it's 75%? Uh, well, we did the math based on the uh, consensus, um, based on the census information okay. of like how many Muslims live in each borough. So cool. we had to tally up the boroughs with how many Muslims live there. Now, when we did that, we realised it was 75%. They didn't give us the criteria on how they're choosing these areas, but given what they said back in 2014, and given the fact that we're looking at these statistics now, we're thinking, well, 75% of Muslims actually live within a prevent priority area. We think it's highly likely that they are still targeting predominantly Muslim areas. That's how they're injecting their funding. Therefore, they're going to get more referrals. I mean, 
I mean, look, a lot of the stuff that you've shared with us today uh, on the podcast, um, you know, there'll be parents listening to this perhaps for the first time. Um, there'll be others who knew a bit about Prevent, but now, you know, they've been given a, you know, an insight into uh, the numbers, the stats, or in some cases, the lack of it or the absence of it. And, you know, within certain sectors, there are Muslims, there are Muslim teachers, there are Muslim social workers. There are Muslims in the very fields where there is an expectation or there will be guidance or policy to make prevent referrals. What would your advice be to Muslims and non-Muslims alike? People who have a, a conscience, they have principles and values and, and a sense of justice and fairness. What would your message be to both Muslims and non-Muslims alike who are in these sectors and they have to engage with prevent? So I think firstly, it's really important to understand what that level of engagement looks like, right? Just because you have the prevent duty, it doesn't mean that you have to flag up everything that comes your way, right? You, you don't have to flag up everything. Of course, you have your normal safeguarding duty. Of course, you should exercise your own professional judgment, right? I think one of the really interesting uh, quotes that we included in our report was one from a teacher. Um, when she was challenged about why they made a prevent referral, she said it was a fortnight case, actually. Right. Uh, it, she was challenged. Why didn't you, you know, why did you make the referral? Why didn't you ask? Why didn't you ask the child what this is about? And she said, it's not my duty to find out whether or not, you know, it was true or to kind of investigate. or My to, duty is just to refer. Just to refer. Right. So that is the logic. The logic is. I have to be safe than sorry because I'm mad at it because there's this huge pressure. So I think people need to appreciate that actually. Yes, that duty is there, but it doesn't mean you have an overwhelming pressure to override your professional judgment, to override the things that teachers would have done when these teachers now were growing up. Right? Think about your schooling days and how teachers treated you, how they spoke to you. Right? It doesn't mean you should override that professional judgment and everyone is seen as a security risk. Secondly, I think it's really important that people do, um, you know, where they do have unions, that they draw upon those unions. Because in the early days, we saw a lot of the prevent referrals were the unions were very supportive. And I think they play they a still huge are, role. Right? They still are to some degree, but I don't think they're being drawn on as much as they should be. And I think it's important because essentially as a teacher, you might feel slightly helpless or as a medical professional. But when you know that your union is there and they are backing you and they're also raising concerns about certain things, then it just offers you that bit more, you know, I don't know, that sense of power that you mm -hmm, feel like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm a bit more in control. Um, another point I'd like to raise is that we do get people who contact us often and say, look, I have to do this training what should I do? My boss is saying I have to do this prevent training. Um, and a lot of the times, I must admit that the people who raise the concern are non-Muslims. And they're saying, I don't want to do this training. And again, I think it is part of that thing of, as a Muslim, do you want to raise the fact that you don't want to do this training? So you get flagged and become a yeah, hot... Yeah, you don't want to feel like, oh, as a Muslim, I'm speaking up about this and I shouldn't, I need to be quiet. And it's actually quite embarrassing that we don't. You know, like we feel that, oh, no, we can't. But this is part and parcel of the effect of being a suspect community is that fear. And that is part of thriving. So you're saying just just interject. So, so you're mm. saying that th there could be a situation and there have been. I've spoken to them myself, yeah. uh, Muslim teachers or or, or, or healthcare professionals, child mind and so forth. And they've been within amongst their peers and colleagues of whom uh, majority are non-Muslim. But they don't want to be that person. Yeah. Right. They don't want to be that. Oh, OK, so you happen to be the one that's going to issue with prevent oh you also have to be the muslim yeah. right so, and because of that they're silenced and they engage 
and in some cases they again overcompensate because they don't want to be seen as not making as many referrals as their non-Muslim colleagues. I mean, I think that is the case. I mean, obviously we have had people who are Muslims who have raised flags. We have had people who've even left their roles because they feel uncomfortable with what they're being asked to do. Now, we're not suggesting people leave their jobs because they're being asked to do prevent training because the truth is, is that if your job is going to implement it and say that you have to do it, then you're going to have to do it. And, you know, doing the training doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you have to go to every child and, and refer them for a silly comment, mm -hmm. you know. But there, there have been people, but I'm just... I'm flagging it because I think it is part of being a suspect community and I think a lot of people overcompensate and even to their children you know in terms of how they tell them to behave at school you know don't ask for the prayer space you know it's fine you know collect all those prayers especially when it's a short day collect all those prayers bring them home it's like why can't your child go and pray in a prayer room why can't your child wear hijab and it's scary because sometimes you know, we have to be conscious as well that we're sharing stories that could also be disempowering like when we share a story and we say well this child was flagged up because they started wearing hijab and that was seen as a change, right? Mm. Because a change- That's one of the factors. Change is one yeah. of the risk factors. The risk factors, right? yeah. So you're changing the way you, you, you like wear your clothes, you're becoming more conservative. This is a risk factor. So obviously parents, even if they don't actually know prevent, they know that that kind of conservatism might raise a flag. That exists. Yeah. I'm telling you now, sis, that know. exists because uh, I'm gonna give the example of my sister, right? Um, when she sends the nieces to school, right, there is a sense of don't say this at school. Yeah. Not because we don't believe in it. We absolutely believe in them proudly with our chest strong. But we know what that could happen in school. We know what that could lead to in school. We know how your teachers could misinterpret that in school. And I have found myself sometimes when I'm engaging with my sisters mainly, right, and nieces mainly, right, um, even though it affects boys as well, but I, I find myself having this conversation with my, my sisters mainly, is, you know, trying to police what they can and cannot say at school, right? Or not saying something because the vast majority or a significant proportion of other Muslim parents are okay with something. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. And, 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 and it's something which, I'll be quite frank with you, I was speaking to a, a, a white non-Muslim friend of mine, I, I, sorry, I digress, I said, mm -hmm. I said, you will never experience what we experience when we travel. Mm. And that's just facts. You do not have, not that I say I have anxiety, but the anxiety that Muslims as a collective experience, that we can get stopped anytime, we can get scheduled seven anytime, we can miss our flight anytime. And that's something you never have to prepare for. Alhamdulillah, you know, it's something that you don't have to experience because of who you are, what you are, and how you sound like. And the same is for schools, right? That when Muslim children are going into schools that they can't express what they're being taught at home because of the risk that is associated with being referred to prevent or you know, being referred to the channel program. And it's a horrible situation to be in. But is it one that we acknowledge that we know why it's happening? Because not everyone can be a brave mom, Dr. Leila. Mm. Not everyone can be a brave parent. People will generally opt for the option of just silence and self-censorship. Yeah. I think there's two things there. Firstly, you're right. It is, it is so much easier and it feels a lot safer to be in that position where 
you censor what your children say mm-hmm. as much as you can, in a way. Um, sometimes I think it's worse because, like, you might ch- tell your child not to say something that's playing on their mind. And they, they go and, and they say it. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I think you have to also think about, and this is where a lot of our clients actually do come forward and they do step up, especially the ones that you know share their story, even with us, even if they don't share it publicly, mm-hmm. they're still sharing that story, right? We've got over six hundred cases. That's minor in terms of how many people are referred every year right mm-hmm. over six thousand people referred every year we have 600 cases that's that's hardly anything of course okay we have and yet we have the biggest database of prevent referrals documented right so we say that but at the same time it's very minor and you think the people who sh- choose to share their story publicly or even just privately to us right that is a big step because they're choosing to share that information and also what they're doing is they're essentially saying that what I'm doing is I'm standing up for others not to be in that position. Mm -hmm. So the more you censor, the more extreme everyone else seems. Think about it, because if everyone is censoring, right? None of the Muslim children are saying, I don't wanna get involved in mixed gender, gender sports. None of the Muslim children are wearing hijab. When that one child does decide to wear hijab, they're even more exceptional. Right? So you're actually perpetuating this idea of what is seen as extreme because you're fueling this concept that actually this isn't a majority view, even though a lot of these views are majority normative Absolutely. Islamic views. Absolutely. Outside, to the outsider, it's not a majority view because guess what? No one else, no one else cares about this. No one else is practicing this. And what the crazy thing is, even if certain parents or families don't adopt these normative views, they know they're normative. Exactly. I know this for fact. There are so many Muslim parents that know that participating in nativity or Diwali, pretending to be a Hindu deity, and these things are not right. But they do it because they kind of justify it to themselves. They don't want to rock the boat, be flagged, and and they do it. But the vast majority of Muslims, some that are not even that well versed in their faith, know certain things are not allowed, and they know it. But so you're saying self censorship is actually perpetuating a, 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 a more worse situation. I think so, 100%, because you are then creating a wider division between the people who do practice that normative belief and the majority. Because if you are part of the majority, and many, many Muslim parents will be, I say parents, obviously, but like many Muslim parents will be, they will be the majority because you want to protect your child. You never want to be in that situation. Nobody wants to be in that situation. No one wants to deliberately come up against social services or prevent officers, even school. Mm. Even if there's no social services involved, how many parents contact us and they've got that tension with the school? Of course. Something's happened. They've had to put in a complaint. They have to have a meeting. It's horrible. Yeah, Especially when it happens on a Friday. 100%. Things always happen on a Friday and then you've yeah, got yeah. the whole weekend to think and simmer and stew about it. And then, you know, oh, I've got this meeting on a Monday morning. We'll have parents tell us, you know, and I don't know what to do. Um, do I meet with them? What do I say? They want to meet me about something. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's something to do with my child and this is what my child said and I'm concerned. Now, all of that stuff is, is, is traumatizing. It's traumatizing for the parents. When the children actually understand what's happening, they feel they've done something wrong. So it's traumatizing on so many different levels. And we've seen parents years later, years later, they are still impacted by this type, type, type kind of stuff. A random one, how much has language barrier affected uh, prevent referrals in case in terms of with parents? Because there'll be... Mm. Loads. I mean, I mean, I can't speak for non-South Asian families. I, I can't speak for Maghrebis, Arabs, Kurds, and Africans. I can speak for Desi families, mm-hmm. and there will be many, many households that still have parents that English isn't their first language. Yeah. Has that been an obstacle of any sort in terms of people coming forward with cases? 
I'm not sure if it's an obstacle for people coming forward with cases. Um, or, gra- or, or grasping what's actually happening. If yeah, I think grasping, grasping what's happened can be. I mean, we see it in some of our cases where, you know, you have at least one parent who, even like with the younger generation, you have at least one parent who English isn't their first language. Mm. Um, and they will struggle to maybe put in what is actually a standard complaint or they'll feel that extra level of fear because they're course. not sure. But having said that, even with some of the, because um, we've had a few far right referrals call yeah. up Prevent Watch as well, right? Where really? their ch- Yeah, their child has been referred for far right. And you think, why are you supporting them for? Yeah. Well, you know why? Because it's a child being referred for yeah. something they've said, which is ridiculous. Like that person is not- No, if it's unjust terrorist. for us, it's unjust it's for them. Unjust. Exactly, it's unjust. Yeah. And so people might say, well, how comes? But even those parents, you know, they're born and bred here. English is their first language. It's hard sometimes when you're the per- you're too close to the situation. And so you want to articulate something, you want to put in a certain complaint, or you're not really sure how to go about it. So it's hard even for them, let alone for those who have that added uh, language barrier or even just like the school how the school mm. works and what the procedures should be in terms of putting in complaints formally or informally so i definitely think that plays a role bring the podcast to a close um there's one thing talking about principled engagement with prevent if you happen to be within a sector where it falls upon your neck that you have to mm. undergo training or there may be an expectation i get that what about community leaders faith groups community groups uh because if i'm correct again if i'm wrong do 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 correct me um are you of the position that there should be non-engagement with prevent i think when it comes to in terms of community muslim community leaders faith groups we're not talking about public sector workers who are muslim we're talking about as a community in terms of its groups its representatives i think when it comes to community leaders when we're talking about engagement of prevent what we're usually talking about um comes side by side with funding and i think if you are part of the community particularly the muslim community um and you are receiving prevent funding then you're not going to be trusted it's it's like you know whether i say it or or nobody says it but it's just the fact that you won't be trusted in and we'll expose way. you that five pillars yeah. as well <laughs> exactly you won't be trusted and also um so sejda mogul for example she was um a survivor of 77 um she went uh, she was receiving prevent funding and what, she, what, what relation is she of fias muggles with Fiaz Mughal. He's um, from Tel Mama. Do you remember Tel Mama? Um, yeah, I'm not 100% sure if they I have a been. relationship. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure, yeah. But she basically is a 7-7 survivor, okay? She came out from that thinking, okay, I want to, you know, I want to do something. I want to give back. Um, how can I get involved? Got involved with Prevent, received Prevent funding. Now, she actually has a double page spread in our People's Review of Prevent. And one of the things that she says is very interesting is, is that she said that her... Um, the people that she works with, because she works with mainly women, like been victims of domestic violence, yeah. etc. It's part of her charity. Now, she said that one of the things she was asked was to give the information of her clients. She wasn't asked to give information of people who were suspicious, but to share data on the people that with she who? was with. Prevent. Okay. You're receiving this money as part of your give back. Your reporting. Share data. We want certain amount of data. Why do you want that data? They're not even people who've been flagged up, you know, under Prevent. You're just giving Prevent funding because you're saying, well, it helps with community cohesion, et cetera, et cetera. And that isn't the first person. Sajda Mogul isn't the first person who has um, mentioned this about 
sharing data. So a lot of times when money is injected, there is an expectation to share information back. So it's caveated. It's with, it's with strings attached. It's with strings attached. And that's why if you are going to work in the community and you are going to have funding from Prevent most of the time, um, then you are going to engage with it. Even if you think, oh, I'm going to take, you know, and I do believe that was a situation initially. I do believe there were a lot of community leaders who took money from the early days. In of the Prevent. early days, yes, absolutely. They didn't understand. They thought, no, this is going to be for the better. We have a problem. We're going to help, blah, blah, blah. And then it all just kind of fell to pieces. And today... Since there were the art and activists that were taken, they usually thought that way. They usually prevent money well, the in the early is, days. the thing is that they might think, I'm going to take the money, but the I'm going to do something good with it, yeah. you know, from the inside. Yeah. But you're not in a position. You're a recipient. You're not the person with the power. Yeah? yeah. You, you, in the dynamic of power, you are the recipient. You are the person now begging for the money. And when they stop that life source yeah. right you're not going to turn back to your community and ask for money you know why because your community are not going to trust you well, i'm not going to give you money 100 percent. um so considering that you've you've set quite a clear uh position in terms of community groups uh faith leaders who take prevent funding because you say it's associated with that engaging is associated with funding right mm -hmm. so can someone can we meet a prevent officer of a cup of tea do you think that's something that could be fruitful in terms of engagement? Not not to like 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 you know if if, if a Muslim wants to meet their local coordinator to discuss what you're proposing. Uh, these are my issues with it. These are my questions pertaining to it, or I will lend you a willing ear to hear what you've got to say. Is that problematic as well? I don't think there's a problem with. Um engaging but it's all based on your intention right if your intention is right i'm going to engage with you because i want to vocalize what's happening i want to understand what you're doing in my community etc mm. etc et then i mean i don't see an issue in that okay um but i do think you know it, it depends on what that intention is fair right? enough um in terms of you know there's a word that you use that, that, that's community cohesion mm. cohesion is a word that I have seen in so many Muslim organizations' policies, right? Everything's about cohesion. And one of the things in the early days of Prevent, it was it, community cohesion was synonymous with Prevent, right? And again, if you come to a community and talk about community cohesion, it sounds something that's very laudable, yeah. right? Are there ways in which Prevent currently, from your knowledge, is being delivered or being introduced to communities without it being packaged as prevent? I think it is. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why is because when we were asking about prevent funding, where it's being injected, um, there was a lot of ambiguity. So initially there were a lot of projects that were exposed a few years ago in terms of being projects like they weren't necessarily called prevent. They were kind of categorized under community cohesion. Okay. And I think that is more so today because there's such a toxicity with the label prevent that it would be perfectly acceptable to just say, you know what, we're actually going to give you this funding, but we're not going to call it prevent funding. You know, we're going to call it community cohesion. And like I said before, regardless of what you call it, the intention is the same. Like mm -hmm. What is cohesion? What is integration? Mm -hmm. You're basically saying that you, your group, your Muslim group, need to do they need to, to be taught yeah. how to be part of this society. 100%. Same with British values. You, as a Muslim, you need to understand what British values look like. Because you might have been born and bred here, you might have a British passport, mm -hmm. but you're not really British, mm -hmm. right? You carry, you carry genetically, you carry a part of you that isn't quite us. 
Okay. Right? And that's why part of the reason they're called British values, yeah? You need to come and assimilate. We need to be uh, more cohesive. We need to integrate more, okay? And David Cameron was talking about women learning English, mm. um, you know, people being at home, not, not participating. You know, you've got areas that are no-go zones. This mm. is all to feed that idea that, you know, Muslims have their own set of life. Mm-hmm. Not only do they have their own set of life in terms of their beliefs, but in their actions, they don't integrate, they don't mix, they don't produce anything to society. And this is why you get a lot of people saying, hey guys, look, uh, we invented coffee, we did this. And okay, I get that. I get that you no, want to talk sis, about I'm being honest with you. I'm Muslim not... contributions, but yeah. why do you have to talk about Muslim 100%. contributions? Now, the new one is now celebrating Muslim contribution to the two world wars. Yeah. You've got you've got prominent, I know this isn't your field of thinking, but I'm seeing prominent Muslim du'at and charities now spending the Ummah Sadaqah to talk about Muslim contributions in British colonial wars. You've never, our forefathers never did this. I asked my dad, I said, dad, you came here in the 60s and 70s. Was there ever an expectation to talk about what the Indian Muslims did or Indians did for the, for he goes, never. He goes, not in the 80s, not in the 90s, not even in the early 2000s. But now I'm hearing and seeing this whole kind of let's celebrate the Muslim contribution to world wars. It's absolutely crazy. Um, you said that it's, Prevent has become so toxic, right? That naturally it would, it, 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 would, it would come as no surprise if uh, local authorities or central government were to now deliver funding repackaged or reworded as something else right i will i i I will close the podcast by then asking you why does it have to be scrapped why can it not be repackaged why can it not be tweaked why can it not be why can it not be so pervasive um and sinister and draconian in its pre-crime element but maybe there's some other elements that perhaps is something we can take from. Why can it not be a strategy that's managed by the community itself? Mm-hmm. So why does it have to be scrapped? Yeah. Why can it not be repackaged? Why can't we take any good from it if there's any good in it? Mm-hmm. And why can't the community manage it? Okay, so why does it need to be scrapped? I would say because all of the, we hear a lot about the concerns around prevent, right? The problems of prevent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get caught up in this idea that, you know, prevent is discriminatory. Yes, it's discriminatory. There's evidence to suggest it is. Prevent is traumatizing children because of the overwhelming number of children who are referred. Yes, it is. Prevent, um, you know, is all of these other concerns. You know, it's preventing free speech. It's um, causing a chilling effect. There are all these issues. Oh, it conflicts with other human rights. You can mention all of the issues of prevent. And in the end, you could probably come to a conclusion and say, okay, it has issues, but... The objective is to prevent people being drawn into terrorism. So we're just going to work to try and make those issues less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make it less discriminatory. Right. Uh, talk about how it impacts children and let's try and remove that impact. Okay. You could do that if at its core it was working. But what we're saying is that prevent at its core is not working to prevent terrorism. Right. There's no evidence to suggest it does. We know that in the balance of there's always going to be a balance between security and liberty. We just have to accept that, Mm -hmm. right? Every community has to, right? But when you're talking about pre-crime, you are assuming something that you have no basis of evidence of. 
you're assuming it based on an individual's thoughts, based on the individual's belief. So you're saying the asal yeah. of it is not even working? The very foundation, if we're looking at the actual signs of radicalization, we're looking at the whole notion of pre-crime, we're not talking about predictive policing. We're not saying, okay, we've got all the data points of where knife crime is committed, and based on that, we are predictively policing and saying, inject more police into this particular area, because based on the last five years, we've had an increase in knife crime there. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pre-crime, we're talking about predicting a future. Somebody walked in now and said, I can predict what you're going to be in 10 years, you're not going to believe them. Right? Somebody says, oh, I can predict, but I can't prove it, you're not going to believe them. Right? So why do we have a government strategy that basically is based on crystal ball gazing to say, we can predict, we will never ever be able to show you the evidence, but we can predict what's going to happen in the future. And it kind of comes back a little bit to the community as well, when you're saying community leaders, right? Even on Islamic level, okay, spying on your fellow Muslims Haram. and encouraging that, you cannot do it. So Haram. how do you justify it from an Islamic level? From all the different evidence-based perspective, you can't justify it. As a community leader, you can't justify it on an Islamic level. So this is why I think prevent in and of itself is not actually causing any good. And if it was, trust me, they would be banging it on every single day about what that evidence course, was to show. Right? The they would never, They would never miss an opportunity. Even if it was something that they couldn't quite tangibly show, they would say, mm. look, these are the people that we helped. These are the people we supported. And they would have full backing of government, not like our clients who come forward, who have everything against them, but yet they're still speaking up. And, we, and we're yet to see a catalogue or a showreel or showcase of success stories. Yeah, from exactly. That's the truth. I mean, we haven't received a single one. Right? Um, so that's why it needs to be scrapped. That's why it can't be... Um, adjusted or, or revamped or reintroduced because it doesn't work from its very foundation. So you're saying big, you're saying we're not dealing with something that in its foundation works but has X, Y, and Z problems. We're dealing with something that doesn't work and then has X, Y, and Z problems as well. Yes. Why can it not be managed by the community? Meaning why can't Muslim community leaders themselves detach from government funding, mm -hmm. log, document, if they identified the certain individuals in their communities that are showing um, problematic positions and stances, for example, if a fourteen-year-old, if a fourteen-year-old comes into the masjid and says, you know, I've been seeing uh, what's happened to my brothers and sisters in Palestine and in Kashmir and the Uyghurs, uh, inshallah, I'm gonna, I want to train for jihad. I want to go fight. Um, why can't they log something like this and then give the boy nasiha? Mm -hmm. and then address some of his thoughts, perhaps how the concept is correct, but it's misplaced in its uh, context. And yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Why can't the Muslim community manage something like this? Because one of the arguments that I have always said in when speaking with students and communities is that, look, not that the UK government was ever interested in this, but if we had imams, mashayikh, ulama, female scholars, you name it, and they were addressing issues to do with wala and bara, loyalty and allegiance, identity, citizenship, jihad, occupation, oppression, sharia, hudud, khilafah. If we had people that we trust from our communities that were addressing these issues, then perhaps they wouldn't be resorting to fringe problematic sources of influence, whether it's online or whether it's fringe groups here. Um, why can that not be a model? So I think there's this assumption that this didn't exist previously in the Muslim community and prevent was required to bring in these community leaders who were going to be the people who were going to then mm. guide the youth. Mm. 
it was happening it in was. the Muslim community. It's always it happened. Right? It's happened across communities, but it's particularly happened in the Muslim community because in the Muslim community, as much as it's seen as, as a bad thing from a prevents perspective, yes, people congregate. And the masjids, for example, are more than just a place where you go once a week. Mm-hmm. Like the masjids are places where there are extra lessons and people come together. So this was happening. Advice was being given. Right? And in fact, the Muslim community are very successful in flagging up problems when problems do occur. Mm-hmm. So Prevent has just caused this added layer of mistrust. Right? So now, because Prevent is kind of in the background, there's a lot of censoring in terms of what people want to speak about and people don't want to speak 100%. about. Right? Instead of there being advice and speaking to people, it's just straight away, oh my God, you might be a concern. We need cameras. We need to ID you before you come in. So people aren't going to have those open conversations. They talk about more um, online extremism. Mm. Think about it. Why are people going online? Because they're not getting what they're getting, what they, sh- what they should be getting in the masajid. It's not happening at schools. You mm. can't have a conversation with your teacher or a debate, right? It's not happening within your communities, within your masjids. So, of course, where are they going to go? They're going to go online. So, if they are going online to find the answers, like you said, they're more at risk to find these answers. So, they say, okay, well, the solution is bring in prevent because we need to teach them how to behave online. No. Remove prevent because it's not actually functioning to, to reduce or, or stop terrorism from happening. Right? It's complete nonsense concept right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then once you remove prevent and you remove this concept, that actually there should be this mistrust and there should be this spying on people. Then people feel like they have safe spaces, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's at your masjid, whether it's amongst just, just even your colleagues, your, your friends, your family. People are actually afraid to even speak to their friends and family because you even have a small percentage of people who are referred by the family Mm -hmm. to prevent. Last question. We have listeners from North America, America, Canada, Europe, Denmark, Germany, France and other places. Um, And obviously they would have listened or watched everything we've spoken about, about the prevent strategy. Um, Are there versions of prevent in some of the countries I've just mentioned, I'm, I'm assuming there has to be, surely. Yes. So every European country yeah. has a version um, of uh, Prevent. I think Prevent was one of the first and most well-established ones. Denmark uh, was actually first. But Prevent in the UK is one of the most established and seen as the best model for good practice. That is exported around the world. In fact, if you look at the terms of reference for the independent review that the government are doing, they have in there that we are not going to look at uh, foreign interests, right? You're telling me the prevent strategy in the UK, mm-hmm. which we have between ourselves, is amb- and of course we know that the ample of evidence or lack of it exists mm-hmm. of success stories, statistics, is being championed as the best model to the rest of the Western world. Yes, it is not only within uh, the rest of Europe, and you see this, you see prevent coordinators, you know, on their Twitter feeds, they're taking photos of how they've been in this country and they've been in that country talking about the, uh, the um, you know, good practice yeah. of prevent. Mm-hmm. Um, they have it as CVE, countering violent extremism. Yeah. Um, David Otto, who I told you was uh, one of the more international kind of pro-prevent people, uh, I think he does it in Nigeria and some other countries. Um, and also we- Niger. Know- 
Yes. It's gone all the way to Africa. Yes, yes, yes. It's in Africa as well. There are versions of this around the world. It's not just in Europe. The US have their version. And actually, when we speak to fellow activists in the US, what they're talking about now is similar to where the UK was about five, six years ago. So they're talking about funding being injected into certain communities. So you're saying they're a bit behind us? They're a bit behind, yes. Why would you say that's the case, considering that is considered as the belly of the beast and where 9-11 happened and all this kind of... Why do you think... They're five years behind us. I'm not sure why they're behind, actually, but it's, it is interesting because a lot of the things when they're talking, so we have these um, fortnightly meetings, and when they're talking about what is being implemented in terms of funding, in terms of certain groups being, um, you know, kind of sectioned off and community yeah. leaders being spoken to and people losing trust, it does. It feels like it's five, wow. six years behind. And I'm not sure why it is but it's definitely taken from the uk you have visits to you know to china to india to all these other places where they're essentially selling the model of extremism as this brilliant model it's like look how successful we are because you can imagine if someone from the uk was to go to somewhere like france they'd say well the uk is in a much better position than france and this is why look what we do this is what we have to stop to stop certain ideas from proliferating in the first place so it is a very dangerous tool i don't think it's something that only uk citizens should be worried about mm. it's not something that only muslim citizens should be worried about because we've seen that expand and proliferate um so it is something global and one of the concerns that even un special rapporteurs are flagging is that this is going outside of the uk right? what are some of the telltale signs of prevent type strategies or prevent repackage strategies in, your, in for listeners and viewers so they know what kind of like red flags they should identify when hearing about a strategy or policy of this nature it's very difficult because so many of the like layman terminology has been hijacked under prevent so obviously whenever i hear like safeguarding now i'm like wait are you talking about traditional safeguarding or are you talking about safeguarding mm. that you've kind of hijacked now under prevent um cohesion most of the time they'll talk about extremism or non-violent extremism or um you know Pre-crime, pre-crime is a big one. I don't think it necessarily shows up in the strategy documents, mm -hmm. um, but anything that suggests uh, British values or anything along those lines, there are a lot of terms that sometimes you can just look at something and you think mm, that, that carries with it a certain weight um, and a use of terminology that we're not used to seeing in that particular context. Okay. So yeah, it's difficult to explain, but I think there are a few different red flags, but anything that suggests that you should be looking out for signs of something that you know just from common sense you can't predict going forward um, would would be a, a suggestion of it. Why is it so important for the Muslim community to continue supporting Prevent Watch? We are the only organisation that is dedicated to um, supporting people who have been impacted by Prevent. Um, we've only been going for about seven years, so half of the lifetime of since when Prevent was uh, initially introduced, but right from the start of when it was introduced on a statutory footing. Mm -hmm. um, the information and support we provide for people is completely free. We are 100% community funded. We don't take any government type initiatives or grants. Um, essentially, we have a larger network. So we're a very small team, um, but we have an amazing network of lawyers and academics and volunteers that we can reach into um, for various points. So, for example, it is very difficult to find a lawyer 
or even to have a legal basis upon mm -hmm. some of the things that you would assume would have a legal basis. So you think, well, you're discriminated against me because of the way you've put forward this prevent referral. Surely there must be a legal case there. It is very difficult to find uh, a point upon which to challenge when it comes to these prevent referrals. Um, but alhamdulillah, we have very good lawyers who understand not just family law, but they understand prevent. They don't just understand Equalities Act, but they understand prevent as well and how that intersects. So it's really important. Um, so I would say, yeah, especially now with what we're seeing from the leaks from the independent review of prevent, there have only been leaks, obviously we can't think that, but they have come out on mainstream media that there have been leaks. They're suggesting there's gonna be an increase in um, people being referred for Islamist extremism, which means we're gonna get an increase in people contacting us. Um, and we are very restricted in terms of resources, people, time, everyone involved pretty much has other day jobs. Nobody is like strictly working just on uh, prevent watch everyone else has another role that they need to fulfill but they dedicate their time either voluntarily or otherwise to prevent watch because it's important um we need to make sure that we're there for people people don't understand a lot of people haven't actually heard of prevent watch um and those who do stumble upon us mainly through word of mouth you know they receive a lot of support that even if you went to a lawyer and you had the money to produce we actually had a brother last week he was saying to me please i'll pay two thousand pounds just find me somebody who can do this and the truth is he had the money in his pocket to give but there isn't someone like there's not a lawyer or someone that you can go to because nothing's actually happened yet that support that you need is outside of that realm it's in a very unique space um, and i think we carry with us that experience of seven years of 600 and odd cases um already so we can use that we understand what the tactics are we understand what it looks like before even a prevent referral is made mm -hmm. and the quicker you cut it off the better you know some people come to us very late on in the process and obviously we help as much as we can but there's nothing like catching it so early on in the process that we can just you know stop a lot of that trauma and a lot of that heartache that happens afterwards Dr. Leila Eitalhaj, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Jazakallah khair for having And uh, I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he accepts the work of everyone at Prevent Watch. Mm. And uh, I want to say it takes you guys from strength to strength, but we want to get to a situation where there is no Prevent exactly. and there is no need for Prevent Watch. Yep. But either way, I pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses and preserves everyone at Prevent Watch, inshallah. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'm friends and foes. I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast. There's a lot to take in. Uh, the donation link for Prevent Watch will be in the description. Uh, please remember to subscribe to the Blood Brothers podcast on all the audio platforms and of course our YouTube channel. And until next time, Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Blood Brothers podcast, a five pillars production.